Good morning. Welcome to Desert Springs Church. Greetings from Christ Church from, uh, from downtown Albuquerque. Let's stand together and prepare to worship a great God. God calls us to worship him. He says in Psalm 89, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A great God to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. Let's lift high the name of Jesus together. Amen. 
You can be seated. Hey, let me read what we just sang. In verse 2, we said, lift high the name of Jesus. His power in us is greater than this world. To share the reason for our hope, to serve with love and grace. That all who see him shine through us might bring the Father praise. And that's what we're about at Desert Springs Church. We're about loving in word and in deed. We're about proclaiming the gospel and then living out the gospel by serving others. If you're a guest with us this morning, we're so thankful you've come. We want to connect with you. We want to get to know you. We want to answer any questions you may have. So whether you're watching us on YouTube or you're here, uh, you can email us at info at dscabq.com. We desire to speak with you. Also, if you're a guest and you came in this morning, you probably walked in the foyer and you thought we jumped the gun on Christmas, didn't you? Uh, I know it's like early November, uh, but for longtime members, you will know that this is kicking off our annual Navajo Community Christmas. Uh, we have two different Christmas events. We partner with two churches on the reservation, one in Hauk, Arizona, and the other near Cuba, New Mexico. We help them host a community Christmas where they invite their church, but also the people that live around them in their community uh, to come and to receive uh, things like flour and coffee, uh, coats and hats and board games uh, for them to be able to give to their children. And then uh, they sing uh, Christmas songs. We share a meal. And then there is a gospel sermon that's preached. This is something we look forward to every year. These are two church churches that we partnership all year long with. We bring them wood. We pray for them. We know them well. It's something we really enjoy participating in. So those Christmas trees have tags. And the tags are color-coded, so it shows us where each gift should go. So whether it goes to Hauk, Cedar Hill, uh, and then on the uh, tag, it says whatever gift name there is. So like uh, there's board games, there's flour, there's coffee. So you can go and take as many tags as you want. Uh, we're asking that whatever tag you touch, you actually bring with you home. Uh, so we, you know, keep it a clean area. And then if it says board game, you go and buy whatever board game you want. And if you buy Mousetrap, we're going to find someone that wants Mousetrap to be able to give to their children. So uh, this is uh, something that I would encourage you to do if you have kids, to do with your kids, to teach them about the need that's on the reservation and how that we sacrifice for others as Christ had sacrificed for us. Uh, so um, you can pick those up any Sunday uh, until we're asking that all the gifts be back on November 29th. We needed to move up the date to get those gifts back so we have more flexibility in case the reservation is closed when it's time for the community Christmas events. So speaking of that, we have uh, the two events on December 12th and December 20th. That's uh, good news in Cedar Hills, respectfully. Uh, if, um, if the reservation is closed, they're still going to have the event. That just means that we cannot... Uh, come from Albuquerque into the reservation on the weekends. We're not really sure uh, what's going to happen with that. But I'd encourage you, if you want to go, and if it happens to be open, uh, we can go. Go on the web or on the app, and you can sign up. Uh, we would love to have you. So be praying for that. Be praying that 
uh, we can go uh, and serve them. Uh, and if, if it's God's will that we can't, that God would use these gifts to bless our brothers and sisters and their community. Uh, lastly, uh, you'll notice that there are some purple tags on the trees. Uh, we partner with Los Ranchos Elementary School. It's a school really close to us, just in the Northwest. And uh, we have volunteers that are in the classrooms. We have volunteers in their offices. Uh, we do teacher appreciation days and we do meals for them. Uh, we are very close to that school. They know our church by name. And we have uh, given some of our missions budget to help 50 kids this year, uh, providing them nutritional supplement for the weekends. You know, they get free food for lunches. We're helping them during the weekends when they don't have that free lunch. And so we're continuing that relationship by having gift baskets for them. And our church has agreed to provide 50 board games for these kids. Why board games? Because we want them to be playing with their parents. We want to encourage healthy families at Los Ranchos Elementary. So, uh, yeah, if you want to support Los Ranchos, grab a purple tag. So thank you so much for your partnership. We really appreciate you. There are so many tags this year. We have more tags than, than ever before, and, and we're thankful and we trust that uh, this is going to lead to uh, more gospel opportunities. So please join me as I pray for our gospel service. God, we praise you for you are a great God and a great king above all gods. Lord, we call on you to use this worship service to make much of yourself. Our church comes here this morning not to proclaim a goodness, our goodness, but to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. We pray that you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. May you convict us of our sin where we have fallen short of your righteous character. And may we find abundant grace at the foot of your cross. God, we pray that you would relieve the burden of the lost. May they leave their sins at the foot of the cross and find everlasting joy in you. Father, grow your church for your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Stand again. May you hear the gospel in this song Josiah was just speaking of. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more forever now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom. My steadfast love my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is only bound to live. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing. All is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. It may be difficult to see, he is with us. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoice. 
For in my name His power is displayed Yes it is To this I hold My shepherd will defend me Through the deepest valley He will be And He has Oh the night has been won And I shall Through Christ in me. We can be confident and boldly approach the eternal throne of grace. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled. To suffer for my heart And he was raised To overthrow the grave To this I own My sin has been defeated Jesus now and ever is my king Oh, the chains are released I can sing great news so we respond this way with every breath I long to follow Jesus for he has said that he will bring me home and day by day I know he will Stand with joy before the throne. Yes, to this I hold my hope is only Jesus. Of all the glory evermore to win. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat yet not I, but through Christ. In me, when the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive. Unless the Lord does raise the house in vain, its builders die. To you boast tomorrow's gain. Tell me, what is your life? A mist that vanishes at dawn. All glory be to Christ, yes. All glory be to Christ, our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign with heaven. 
pray that. Who is himself our daily bread? Praise him, the Lord of love. Let a living water satisfy the thirsty without price. We'll take a cup of kindness yet. Yes, Lord Jesus. All glory be to Christ, our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. This is our future, Christian. The great I am, the faithful and the true. pray with me. Yes, Lord Jesus, you are our king, and we will sing of your rule and reign forever and ever. May we sing of it now. May we come back to it often. May we bank on it that you are utterly in control. Not one hair falls from our head apart from our Father's will. Not one sparrow drops to the ground apart from your will. Oh, Lord, we thank you for that. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, we're told. And you turn it wherever you wish. The nations are a drop in the bucket before you. Or as Daniel put it, to you belongs wisdom and might. And you change times and seasons. You remove kings and set up kings. Lord, you are in control. You're in control of this nation and every nation and all of history. You're not only in control, but you're wise. You have good purposes, Lord. You are sovereign and wise and good in orchestrating all things for your people's good and for your glory. Though we don't always see it, though we can't connect the dots, of course not. We are not God. But we believe, Lord, even in dark days, and sometimes especially in dark days, you are in control 
in orchestrating all things for the purposes of your counsel according to your wisdom. And that's why we pray, Lord. And Paul tells us that we should pray as well for those who are in authority, all those who are in authority, that we might live quiet and peaceable lives here within secular societies. And we also pray for the salvation of those who lead us. Lord, we pray for the governor of our state. We pray for wisdom. We pray, Lord, for, well, simply your best, Lord. We sometimes know not what to pray. We pray for our president and the remainder of his term. We pray for salvation. We pray for wisdom. We pray, Lord, for your best. We pray for president-elect Biden. We pray, Lord, for healing in our nation that is so divided these days. We pray for further protection of the unborn in days ahead. Lord, we pray that in all things we wouldn't trust princes or horses or any of the equivalents in our own lives, Lord. And may, may it be when government fails us and and when things don't go our way or haven't gone our way for some time, Lord, we're reminded afresh to not put our trust in that which fails and lets down, but instead to put our trust in you, an omnipotent, all-knowing, perfectly wise, perfectly in control, God. May we trust you in these days. May, Lord, you preserve our unity in the church in these hotly contested and highly divided days. Protect us, Lord. Keep our eyes on what is most important and that which is eternal and that which is so sure. As we spoke of last week, Lord, may we pray for what we know to be true, what we know to be the future, what you've already promised to accomplish. May we prioritize those kinds of prayers, especially in days of increased uncertainty. And may, Lord, you preserve our witness in this world. Keep us shining as bright lights. May our love be obvious to others. May you keep us, Lord, from losing our saltiness. As Jesus told us, we're to be salt and light in this dark world, a city on a hill. Lord, may we shine brightly for your glory and for the spread of the gospel in this world for your kingdom which is sure to come and your will to be done may it be so in jesus name amen thanks for leading us in that ryan let's stand again and uh, continue in that attitude of prayer as we sing this
Yes, Lord, we ask that you would take these ancient words from the scriptures and you would speak them afresh into our hearts today, that we might grow, that others might enter in and be saved, and that you might be glorified. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. You could be seated. Well, we're in the book of Nehemiah again today, and if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Nehemiah chapter 3. We'll actually look at Nehemiah 3 and chapter 4 today as we work our way through the story of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And today we come to a passage that records a real hands-on-deck moment for the people of God. I haven't spent much time on boats, let alone big ships with a crew, but I've seen enough sea-related movies. I'm sure we've all seen the movies or read the nautical-related books to know that phrase, all hands on deck. And of course, it's not just a nautical saying. It's used far beyond any nautical sayings, uh, settings. Rather, All hands on deck means everyone is needed and needed right now. It doesn't matter what you were doing. It doesn't matter what you had planned. It doesn't matter what you normally give yourself to and what is usually your job. All hands on deck. Well, that's Nehemiah 3 and 4. And they're two chapters that go together nicely, though they're quite different in their style, as we shall see. They share the theme of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. That's where chapter 2 left off. That's what we saw last week. Nehemiah inspected the walls and began to rally the troops. And the people said, yes, let us rebuild. Well, that's what plays out in chapters 3 and 4. But chapter 3 gives it to us in a catalog of names in places related to the rebuilding efforts, while chapter 4 plays out in a vivid drama with conflict and tension and suspense and victory. The same theme, but different literary styles. We could call chapter 3 building together, and we could call chapter 4 overcoming together. The building continues in chapter 4, but there's an added tension and threat that needs to be overcome. I'll read just the first 12 verses of chapter 3. Yes, I know there are 32 verses in total in chapter 3, but the names of Nehemiah 3 are very difficult to pronounce and there are a total of 80 or so different names, 80 in one chapter. And more importantly, once we read the first 12 verses or so, you can very easily grasp how this goes and how this works. Uh, the rest of the chapter does the same with different names in different places. So here it is, Nehemiah 3, verses 1 to 12 then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The, the sons of Hasaniah built the fish gate. 
They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the sons of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired. And next to them, Mashulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezuel, repaired. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Baanah, repaired. And next to them, the Toakites, the Tekoites, rather, repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joada, the son of Paaseh, and Meshulam, the son of Basode, repaired the gate of Yashanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Malariah, the Gibeonite, and Jaden, the Moroniathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mitzpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uzziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Hurumph, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabnai, and he repaired. Emokiah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halhash, Halohash, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Well, this is building together. Both words are key. Building together. That's chapter 3. Now, don't forget the backstory. Or if you're new to our study of Nehemiah, even more important, if you're new to the Bible, you have to know what's going on before this. In judgment of God's persistently wayward people, God before this had allowed the Babylonians to come and overtake Jerusalem, really ravage Jerusalem to the ground and take God's people into captivity in Babylon. Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of David, what the Psalms call the apple of God's eye, was laid to waste. But in God's mercy, it didn't last After around 70 years or so, some of the people began to return from Babylon to Jerusalem and began to rebuild. The temple was at one point rebuilt. That's in the story of Ezra, the previous book in our Bibles. There was also in that book a previous attempt at rebuilding the walls. It's in Ezra 4, but it didn't go very far. The governors of the surrounding territories made up lies, sent them to the king, and the king shut down the rebuilding efforts almost immediately. We don't know exactly how long, uh, how little or much progress was made on the rebuilding of the walls in Ezra 4. It would seem like it was very little, if any at all. And that's the report that reaches Nehemiah at the beginning of our book, Nehemiah. He's told the walls of Jerusalem are still broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. We've got to realize that walls were a big deal to ancient cities. Not only was it the demarcation of their land, but it was, more importantly, their defense. 
So broken down walls meant defenselessness. It was a a welcome mat to the surrounding territories or even just would-be bandits and thieves to come in and overtake. So the walls in ruin, that's a big problem. And the rebuilding of those walls, well, that is a massive project. That's the backstory. We should think more deeply on the difficulty of the task. It's not there explicitly in our passage, but that's because we don't understand what they were doing exactly. Some of us, having lived in Albuquerque long enough, have um, been involved in the building of a cinder block wall from time to time. And that's a, a pain. That's difficult. That's hard, sweaty, dirty work. But this is a different kind of rebuilding effort going on here. They're not building from cinder blocks that were brought in on a pallet. These are stones bigger than cinder blocks and heavier than cinder blocks that have been demolished. And it was 140 years ago that they were demolished by the mighty army of the Babylonians. You can see something of the devastation later on in chapter 4 when the enemies of Judah are mocking them, saying, What are these feeble Jews doing? Verse 2. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Just think of the gathering of these giant stones and the dirty work, not only in 140 years of dirt, but also ash. It's a difficult task, especially when you consider the people involved. There are a lot of people involved, but they are an interesting group. There's a redundant formula in chapter 3, a name or names, and then you've got this phrase, next to him, before moving to the next guy. Next to him or next to them, that keeps repeating And then there's this repetition of the verb, they repaired or they set in place, they restored. Redundant formula, but there is great significance, if you don't mind me saying, below the rubble. Below the rubble of our passage, there is some powerful significance. Because the people involved, we might say from one angle, they are nobodies. Nobodies. Oh, some of them have high office important roles or jobs but from another angle these 80 names are nowhere else found in scripture none of them are in the hebrews 11 hall of faith these are none of the famous bible people like david or samson no these are nobodies in one from one angle and of course there are countless unnamed people who were also involved in the rebuilding of the wall They're nobodies, but they're all important. They're all needed. They're all involved, and they're all doing their own part. That's Nehemiah's point in recording all these names. It reminds me of the Stanley Cup. That's the trophy you get when you win the Stanley Cup finals. That's for a sport called hockey, by the way. (laughs) On the Stanley Cup finals, the names of the team get put on the trophy, And even down to the coaches, the managers, the trainers, it's something like 53 people for every team is allowed to be put on the Stanley Cup. The scouts, 
I mean, I don't know if it goes as far as, you know, the stick boy or something like that, but, but, but so many people, not just the players, they're on the trophy, and these people are part of the trophy of God's grace in Nehemiah 3, and yet they're nobodies. It starts with the high priest. Notice that. Verse 1, it's the high priest and his family and his ministerial team that get the ball rolling. They begin at the sheep gate, the northwest corner of the city. This is where the sacrifices would enter in to go to the temple to be sacrificed, of course. And if you notice at the end, the last verse of our chapter, they're back at the sheep gate again. So there's been a geographic trek, I think it's counterclockwise, one section of the wall at, at a time to describe the rebuilding efforts going on. But it starts with the high priest. He doesn't say, no, 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 we do sacrifices. We don't mind blood, but we don't do dirt and we don't touch ash. No, the high priest and his family and his ministerial team led the way. This list in Nehemiah 3 also includes such great diversity of status and occupation. Notice it ends in verses 31 and 32 with reference to goldsmiths and merchants, people who are not naturally good at masonry work. Goldsmiths, they do clean, fine, beautiful work. Merchants, they buy and sell things. They're not normally gifted for the task of rebuilding a wall, but they're there. They're needed. All hands on deck. Rulers are the most often kind of person mentioned in Nehemiah 3. The rulers are involved. They're leading the way. There's even in verse 12, a ruler and his daughters involved in the rebuilding efforts. Most Dads here would not involve their daughters in the rebuilding of a cinder block wall in your backyard. We got it, you might say. Well, even more so in ancient days, and yet here are the daughters. Perhaps it's a, a ruler with no sons. Who knows? Maybe the daughters wanted to be involved, but they're there. They're needed. They're serving. They're, they're even perfumers in verse 8. Perfumers involved in this rebuilding effort. Again, they're not expertise in, they don't have expertise in masonry. No one was saying, you know what we need for this project is Gary the perfumer. He'll be great. But he's involved. Not everyone's involved, though. Did you catch the one occasion where some are not involved? It's in verse 5. The Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Serve their Lord, the Lord, no doubt. They missed the whole point. They missed what was going on. They missed out. But apart from them, apart from a half of a sentence, the overall picture of the whole chapter is one of beautiful unity and sacrifice and hard work. These were people who were not consumeristic, merely showing up to watch or be entertained or to entertain their curiosities. Some of us might do that. What, there's this building project going on? That's new. That hasn't happened in 140 years. Let's go check it out. We might even offer some advice if we see the plumb line being off a little. They weren't divided by lesser matters. 
They got to work, and they were focused on the wall in front of them, not, well, uh, who'd you vote for? And what do you think is going to happen with this election thing and President Trump's lawsuits in the court? And what you think that? I'm out of here. No, there's no distraction here. These are a focused people. They're not individualistic in their approach to the work. Not, Not doing their own thing. There's no mention of someone saying, wall in my backyard? No, I like the view. I'm going to keep it wide open. Or I'm going to build a two-foot wall. The rest of you are doing eight-foot walls, ten-foot walls. My kid will climb up that and fall and get hurt. It's going to be a two-foot wall in my section. None of that. You think a lot of things, what could have been said or would have been described had we been involved in the project. But it's a beautiful picture. It's actually a beautiful picture of the body of Christ if we think of the move from Old Testament to New Testament. This is the people of God laboring on behalf of God for the work of God. And they're doing it without distraction, in unity, and without division. It is a beautiful analogy of the body of Christ. Think of the way... Chronicles of Narnia tells a story that is akin or analogous to the Christian life. Or Pilgrim's Progress does the same. Well, Nehemiah 3 and 4 does something similar. Except it's true and historic. But it is painting for us a picture of God's people involved in God's project for God's glory. Again, undetoured, undistracted, and, and not... Uh, divided. It's an illustration for us. It's a, a window or analogy. It's an analogy really of what Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 12 where he gives a different analogy. The body of Christ. You should read that again. It probably has been a while since you were there. Read 1 Corinthians 12 this afternoon to remind yourself of Paul's beautiful multi-layered illustration of how the church is like a body. One thing, doing one thing but different parts doing their own parts for the whole of the big thing. It's beautiful. Makes me think of different times in our history as a church where we've come together for a special project and there's been great unity and sacrifice and joy. Uh, When I showed up at this church in 2003, people were still talking about Uh, The days, I think, from 98 to 2002, before this building was built. And this was a mobile church meeting at La Cueva High School every weekend. And so that means that many different people, maybe maybe the the majority of the church was involved in the setup and tear down for the weekly services of the church. Some were not necessarily akin to tech ministry, but they're, they're the ones who carried the boxes of cords. And some maybe weren't involved in teaching children, but they're the ones carrying in the bins of the resources and supplies for the kids' ministry. I heard that that was a sweet time and a unifying time in the life of our church. I showed up, as I said, when this building was already built, but uh, there, was still, there were still projects to be done. The church decided to save money by not hiring a landscaper 
for the yard. And so a year or a year and a half after this building was built, the, the grass was not yet fully in. And so many of us, some in this room, uh, would show up on a Saturday morning to lay sod together. Um, none of us were experts at sod, but it's not that hard. You pick up a roll, you unroll it, and you repeat. And you keep doing it, and you do it together, and you meet back next Saturday to do it again until it's done. I think of uh, back in 2010, I believe, when we presented to the church the need for uh, an Achi translation of the New Testament in audio form, a project that was going to cost $30,000. We presented that opportunity before the church and hope to raise the $30,000 over the next four weeks. And we raised it that Sunday. Imagine the church just saying, yeah, 600 people on a Sunday show up and, and $30,000 is what is partnered together, pooled together for the Bible among Guatemalans. How beautiful. I think of uh, how we have funded two missionary families to North Africa all these years. I've said before, I remember hearing the idea at first and thinking, man, we are swinging for the fences. And I love that, but maybe we'll be able to support half of what it would cost to have one family on the field in North Africa. Oh, no, I thought too little. We've supported two families in North Africa now for many years. You think of the planting of Christ's church. Uh, they just celebrated four years as a church last Sunday. We as a church sent 80 of our best human-resourced people and their kids with their giving and our monthly support to the new church. And here, years later, it is a, a thriving church. Matt Jones, who led for us today, was one of those people who left Desert Springs to plant Christ Church. And we're so thankful for what God has done there and how this church was used to plant that church. Well, you can't help but think also of what seems like many years ago, but was just several months ago that we were talking about next, our next initiative and all that. Remember that that Sunday when we came together and we said, all right, so how much did we commit to this project and we were within shooting range, let's say. It was enough. I remember, we just we clapped. We, we praised God. We were thankful and blessed by each other's giving. And then to think that that continues to happen, it continues to be funded even through months of COVID, where, where so many of us are not only distracted by this pandemic, but, but also financially pinched by this pandemic. And yet the work goes on. The, the work goes on. The work isn't done. It's still all hands on deck. The Lord continues to put new rubble in front of us and tell us to rebuild. How great to hear from Josiah today about the, the, the plans for Community Christmas again this year and for new initiatives with Los Ranchos Elementary. That's what unites us, folks. In these days where there is hyper-division and growing tension, we got to remember more and more and keep preaching to ourselves more and more what unites us. 
It may not be the same side of the aisle anymore. It may not be this president or that president. It may not be how to view issues of social justice. It, it may not be that those things can be comfortably just left to the side and not talked about as it was maybe in years past. But nevertheless, those, those, though those could be potential threats to divide us, what unites us is unchanging. What unites us is eternal. We tend to think in these highly polarized, high, tense times. Oh, so much is at stake. And what if what's at stake is nothing less than our unity as a church and nothing less than our testimony in the world, nothing less than us being divided on the mission of God? We got wall to build. To give ourselves to it. Well, on to chapter 4 now. Let me read Nehemiah 4 for us. Nehemiah chapter 4. Look down in your Bibles, if you would, as I read it. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So, in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked in a rose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes." When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. 
From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leader stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Well, chapter 3, building together. Chapter 4, overcoming together. The building continues throughout chapter 4, of course, but now it swells with drama and suspense and tension. The opposition is great, and the opposition is growing in this chapter. In verses 1 through 3, it's the jeers, the mockery, the slander. But by verse 7 and 8, now the people involved in the opposition, they're growing, and it's now a plot to fight against and confuse Judah. And by verse 11... The opposition turns murderous. The plan is to kill them. That'll stop them, they thought. Now you have to wonder what the reasons were for such anger, such opposition. I mean, could it be good old racism against the Jews? It sure could. Could it be greed That a secure Jerusalem meant less financial opportunities for these territories and their rulers? It sure could. Could it be simply a geopolitical chess match that you're less advantaged when this different city and these people are secure? It sure could be. But it's not stated, and it just could be unexplainable, inexplicable hatred and opposition. Don't we know that as Christians? Haven't we seen that through the ages? Why do the nations rage against the Lord and against his anointed? Well, because they're fallen. Because he is the true king, and they don't want a true king. They want to burst his bonds and be on their own. Why is it that many atheists who don't believe in God hate the God that they don't believe in. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Why get worked up and angry because you believe in something that I don't think exists? It doesn't make any sense, but there it is. We see it all the time. Unexplainable, inexplicable opposition, but it shouldn't be unexpected opposition. We're promised. We, we, we referred to Genesis 3 last week. The seed of the woman is 
opposed by Satan. We referred to Psalm 2 last week. Yes, the nations rage against the Lord and his anointed and his offspring. On and on it goes. We should expect opposition in this fallen world. And the kind of world that many of us, most of us, have lived in in our lifetime is not the rule but the exception to the rule in church history. The church, God's people, are often opposed and opposed violently. And so we ready ourselves. Who knows what's next? We don't know. That doesn't mean we cheer it on. It doesn't mean we don't take advantage of whatever we can pursue, like religious liberty in the courts, etc. But we shouldn't be surprised when it comes. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but I've overcome the world. They hated me, they will hate you by extension, but you'll be blessed. Now, with each of these rounds of opposition, we'll see in just a bit that each of them is met with uh, prayer and resolve and the work continues but we've noticed the opposition from without. Now, notice the discouragement that happens from within in verse 10. In verse 10, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. We aren't able to do this. It seems unending. Who do we think? We're kidding. We can't do this. We got perfumers for crying out loud. There's discouragement. And we understand that. We've experienced it, right? Jesus said that we should be about the Great Commission until he comes back. We've been at it 2,000 years. We're not close to being done. So we keep going. And at times it feels like we're, we're not making any progress, Lord. Are you building your church? And then every now and then, just like in between services, you hear of someone who just recently put their faith in Christ a gentleman who doesn't, doesn't know the Bible, doesn't know much. It was described to me as he's a young man who doesn't know that the Bible had two testaments. And yet during the sermon of the last hour, he was writing a poem about what he was learning from Nehemiah 3 and 4. It's the work of grace. We shouldn't be discouraged from within, but we understand it. There are also complaints back home, as you see in verse 12. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions, and they said to us ten times, you must return to us. Some left their homes to rebuild the wall, and those back home at some point came and said, you've left us vulnerable. You've been gone too long. What about us? Are we not important? And we understand that. But the work must go on. And the work does go on. As I said, there are cycles in this chapter of building and then threat and then some responsive encouragement, whether prayer or word of encouragement, and then they're back to building. Now let me show you four different ways in which they fought opposition and discouragement. Four ways. One is prayer. Prayer, you see prayer in verses 4 and 5, probably prayed by Nehemiah. In the face of great opposition, he prays. He prays what we call an imprecatory prayer, a prayer of judgment. It sounds funny to our ears, but these are all over the Bible, not just Old Testament times. 
But you have to understand, this is, this is not someone praying against someone who is their personal enemy, who's simply getting in the way of their wishes and plans. This is someone praying against what is against God. These people oppose God. They oppose his people because they oppose God. And they're praying for God to act. They're committing it to the Lord. They're not taking vengeance into their own hands. They're giving it to God and asking for God to intervene, for God to stop them, for God to bring judgment as he promised he would. Our God is just. They're praying that God would expedite his justice for the good of his name and the progress of his ways in the world. There's just a brief mention of prayer in verse 9. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection. They prayed. Nehemiah continues to show us what a model of prayer looks like. Remember in chapter 1, he heard the bad report and he gave himself to pray for many days, even months. Remember in chapter 2, he needs to answer the king and he prays briefly before he provides the answer. And here in chapter 4, when in doubt, pray. When you face opposition or discouragement or complaint, pray. There's also the strategy of encouragement. Encouragement, verse 14. Notice verse 14. I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah doesn't just turn his eyes to the Lord in prayer, but he looks out at those who were discouraged and weary and scared and he preaches to them. He encourages them. This is a, a brave heart kind of moment. This should get our blood boiling. This, this should... This should light us afire, afresh. Fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters, your wives and your God. We need to encourage each other. The New Testament tells us as a church we're to encourage one another with these words. Encourage. Speak truth. Notice when there's low energy and feed into that. Uh, give that person what they need. There's also strategy. Another way they faced opposition and discouragement is with good, thoughtful strategy. Nehemiah apparently leads the way with a strategy that is simple but profound and effective. You see it in verses 15 to 18. Those who are carrying something, well, carry as much as you can with one hand and put a weapon in your other hand. Those who are at the wall working on the construction, keep a sword at your hip. For every man working at the wall on the building, there's another man behind him watching. It's a thoughtful, careful, simple, but effective strategy. And we should strategize especially in these days of COVID. In these days of COVID where ministry isn't quite the same as it was in 2018, 2017, or any other year previous. 
Some of you were heavily involved in children's ministry and you're not doing that now. What do you do? Well, strategize. I bet you can give yourself to prayer more now than you could before. Is everyone in this room subscribed to our email prayer list, the prayer force? You should be. Those come in a few times a week. When you get it, you pray. Everyone in this room, if you're a member, you have access to our online membership directory. You should join the elders in praying through the names in alphabetical order. Do it at your own pace. Do it however you'd like. But do it. Pray for the members of the church. Pray systematically for your leaders and for our missionaries. We've got to strategize. These are unusual days, and we don't know exactly how long they'll go on. But what we shouldn't do is say, well, I don't like these circumstances. Let me just sort of step back. Let me just wait it out. You know what? You go on with the wall. I got other things to do. If I can say so, we've heard some say, you know, community groups meeting over Zoom, I just don't like it, and I'm just not going to do it. Friend, it's not just for you, right? There's building at the wall that needs to happen, and these days some of that building happens electronically on screens. I don't like it either. But I'm not going to give myself to turn away from those on the screens. That's where the building happens in part these days. Strategy. I could go on, but I won't. Most importantly, it's the Lord that is the factor here. There's prayer, encouragement, strategy, and the Lord. This is how we face opposition and even discouragement. The Lord is the definitive factor. As we saw last week, he's the definitive factor. You see it in these little statements, like in verse 15. God had frustrated the plans of their enemies. They saw, wait, they think God is in this, and they're making progress, and the enemy was discouraged and took a step back. Apparently not much of a step back, because the guards needed to still stand guard, and the swords needed to stay at the hip. But God had frustrated their plans for a time. Or verse 20, the the simple statement, our God will fight for us. That's the basis for rallying there. That's the basis for guarding the wall and the people working at it. God will fight for us. Now, we've already done this a, a number of times in this message. We've gone to the New Testament. We've dipped in there. But let me just summarize how we do that legitimately with two B's. There is a new building program and there is uh, a new battle as we come to the New Testament. Nehemiah 3 and 4 describes building and a bit of a battle. And in the New Testament, these ideas are escalated, they're elevated, they're, they're transformed. We're a part of a new building project. It's described in 1 Peter 2 as the Lord Jesus taking living stones, putting them together for the making of the temple of the presence of God. These are spiritual stones, Peter says, and those spiritual stones are people. Our God is rebuilding, we can say, from the rubble. 
the rubble of this world. Me, you, if you're in Christ, he has rebuilt us from the rubble. He's taken us from the smoldering piles of dust and he's put us together for nothing less than to be the presence, uh, to, to be a, a place for the presence of God in these days. A new building project. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And it's on that basis that we continue to build each other up as we spoke of last week from Ephesians 4. Build each other up in love. There's a new building project and there is a new battle. The battle gets transformed as we come to the New Testament. You see it when Jesus in the garden was about to be arrested and Peter took out his sword and lopped off the ear of one of the arresting soldiers. He wasn't going for the ear. He was fighting for his Savior to not be arrested. Jesus understood it, but he said, Peter, put your sword away. This will not come to fulfillment apart from my arrest. That's paraphrasing, but essentially Jesus said, it must go another way. You, you see this when Jesus is before Pilate and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, then my followers would be fighting for me that I wouldn't be arrested. But it is not of this world. So they don't fight that way. The new battle, while Jesus wins it, Ironically, irony of ironies, he wins the biggest battle against the greatest enemies with self-sacrifice, by laying down his life, by giving himself over to his enemies that he might die in the place of sinners and be raised victoriously on the third day. Christ has won the battle. And yet it's Done and not done. It's now and not yet. D-Day, that's behind us. But it's not yet V-Day, if you know World War II history. And so we battle on. Ephesians 6 speaks of the armor that we're to wear as Christians. It's not literal, physical, bodily armor. No, it's a breastplate of righteousness. It's the helmet of salvation. We, pay, we take up the sword of the word. These are our instruments of battle. These are our defense mechanisms. We wrestle now not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And so Paul can use military language like even that of the Roman army. In Philippians 1 he does this, but he puts it all in spiritual terms. He tells them that they should be standing firm as one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened by your opponents. Paul uses this phrase side by side. In the Greek, it's a, a phrase of the Roman army, the front line locking shields and arms and spears to form one wall, one impenetrable wall. That's what we are. Next to him, next to him, next to them were they rebuilt, they repaired. The enemy, well, they've got their jeers, their mockery. They may even try to confuse us. 
They might go against us. They might try to kill us. But in Christ, as we stand on our Savior, the solid rock, and lock arms together, we are side by side, striving for the faith, not frightened by our opponents. May we continue to be, and may we give ourselves to prayer and mutual encouragement and strategy, trusting the Lord that he will do it. And Christians, Nehemiah 3 and 4 should energize us. It paints a picture for us of what we're to do, of what we're to be and do together. We are building together. We are overcoming together on account of Christ who's already won the battle and stands with us until the day when he brings us home. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you again for your marvelous word and its manifold glories. We thank you, Lord, for the marvelous true history, but illustrative history of Nehemiah 3 and 4, painting for us this energizing, lively picture of our partnership in the body of Christ. Lord, grow us together. Make us busy people, undistracted, undivided people for the work that you have before us. May it be for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Stand and respond. We are the bricks, we are the stones, and Christ is the cornerstone in our foundation. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood. Righteousness, I tend not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. We encourage one another with that. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. His oath is short. His oath is covenant. His blood support me in the raging flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground. Sing
he shall return When he shall come with trumpet sound Oh, may I then in him be found Dressed in his righteousness alone Faultless you stand before the throne On Christ the solid rock I stand All other ground is sinking sand All other ground is sinking sand On Christ the solid rock I stand All other ground is sinking sand The Bible loves metaphors. The Bible loves word pictures. And so one word picture we already talked about is Jesus taking stones from the rubble, as it were, and putting them together to make up a place, a people for his presence, a temple. Another one we just sang, on Christ we stand. He's the solid rock. All other ground is shifting sand. And so I ask you, what are you standing on? What are you hoping in? What are you leaning upon? What is your hope? If you're not yet a Christian, we pray you would stand upon Christ. You would forsake all other shifting sands that for some time in your life you thought it was solid ground. You thought it was hopeful. It was worth building upon. It's not. It's not. I pray you see that sooner rather than later perhaps today and so if you have questions about that if you need help in, in getting yourself to stand upon Christ or rather God getting you to stand upon Christ let us know how we can help uh, if you're tuning in on video you can email us info at dscabq.com and if you're in this room and you'd like to talk with someone today, I'll be up front afterwards and others will as well. And we're here to meet you, to greet you, to counsel you, to answer any questions you might have. Stand upon Christ, the solid rock. Christians, let us stand there at the wall. And as he has put us in him, so now we build, we build, we build. Undetoured by the threats around us, undistracted, by alternative pursuits and undivided in this unified body of Christ that Jesus Christ has made for himself. I close with the end of Jude, this blessing now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.